Mini episode 1309 is brought to you by Sportsology, delivering unconventional columns and webcasts about sports, TV, music, movies, and more. Follow them on the web at sportsology.com. The FDH Lounge. You want to schedule your life around it. A long time ago, on a gloomy, wet Cleveland spring night, two men stand alone amidst the late night drizzle. Their voices echo across the vacant station parking lot as they debate the merits of the great American radio show that have been missing for far too long. On that night, an idea was born. That idea became the FDH Lounge. Welcome to the FDH Lounge. Hello, everyone. Welcome to FDH Lounge mini-episode 1309. This is FDH Management Partner Rick Morris here. And we've got one of our favorite FDH Lounge dignitaries here with us today, FDH NBA analyst Ben Chu. The conversation that we're going to have, we teased this when we were doing our NBA draft preview. This would be coming sometime ahead, and we decided to take this even a little bit earlier than when we teased it. We're going to be talking today about a subject that has been coming up, I think, increasingly on the show over the course of the last year, and that being this modern age of player development in the NBA and what we're seeing here. And it was really brought to sort of a crown in the conference finals this year when you had Miami and Denver, who are the two shining stars right now of player development in the NBA and of reaching that level the sort of atypical way without a highly drafted megastar that they've built the team around. Both of these teams, and it's ironic because that's how Miami made it to the finals four times in the early uh, 2010s. Uh, it started with the base of Dwayne Wade, added, of course, LeBron James, Chris Bosh, and they did it. The, the, that was the sort of prototypical way of maybe you start building your big three from within, you recruit, you do what you got to do to get the other pieces in there. And that is still a leading way to do it in the league, based on the way that the Lakers won the championship this year with LeBron and Anthony Davis coming in from the outside. But we're seeing a model that gives hope to a lot of teams out there. Folks like myself, fans of the Cleveland Cavaliers, who did win a championship, again, the LeBron way, LeBron plus Kyrie plus Kevin Love on that model. But you know what? The Cavs are not going to be able to replicate that anytime soon. If it's going to be the Cavs, if it's going to be any other number of teams in the league, they're going to have to embrace the model that we're going to be talking about today and breaking it down. And I just have to say, after the last several months of content on this show here, the way that the, the, the news cycle sort of compressed everything together with uh, all of the sports content that we've had to do sort of all at once and the elections and everything else dictated by the news cycle, I go back to a segment we did a couple months ago with Barbara Boland of the American Conservative talking foreign policy, and it's nice to be able to do segments on the show where we can just take a segment independent of the news cycle, break it down, analyze it. We haven't had enough room to do something like this recently, and I've really been looking forward to it. And again, my good friend Ben Chu, I always look forward to the conversations with him on and off air. So... Ben, having set it up, I think we're going to have a really, really excellent conversation today getting into our thoughts on player development in the league and why this is a golden age that we are seeing. Right, and I think it's going to be a fun thing to break down, too. And as usual, my, uh, my residual check is still not clear. <laughs> we'll be working to come back. <laughs> we'll put... It's just like player development, Rick. Every time I come back, I search the 
That's right. That's right. Uh, just keep putting it on the tab. Uh, I will gladly pay you Tuesday for a conversation today. And uh, <laughs> the uh, this is this is something we've been we've been kicking around for for, for quite a while. And uh, we sort of got into a little bit of thought off air here, just kind of setting this up a second ago. And I would kind of lay it out to me the sort of before and after period in the NBA. Uh, ironically, just two years short of the 50-year period. You had the uh, NBA at 50, very memorable for me when the All-Star game came to Cleveland in 97, the 50 greatest players of the NBA. Through the first 48 years, I don't know that we saw that many differentials here as far as player development scouting. There were obviously those who did it more effectively and efficiently, and uh, you, know, you think of Red Auerbach, Jerry West, there were ones who did it better than the other general managers out there. But to me, 95 is the big break in the system here. It was when the high school players started being allowed to come into the draft, KG going at number five to Minnesota very memorably. And I think the beginning of the era that we're talking about now, as far as how teams have had to make big adjustments in player developments, I think it goes back exactly 25 years to this date in 2020. That's a very good point, and as somebody who researched very, very thoroughly LeBron James's career coming into the NBA in 2003, living in the market, Cleveland, that he came into and played that year and following the entire story, I remember writing at the time about that, that he is somebody where it was about as close, by 2003 standards, it was about as close as you could come to the Truman Show, basically. I mean, the kid hadn't been you know, chronicled literally since he was born, but the way that he had come up through the ranks, his high school career, I was at the game in 2002 at the Convocation Center 
uh, where in Cleveland, uh, the first ever high school game on ESPN2 where his team played, uh, what was it, Oak Ridge Academy, and, uh, or Oak Hill Academy, and uh, it was a really uh, unique kind of phenomenon at the time that LeBron was sort of the first guy who had been in this gilded cage coming up of where he had just been profiled to such a degree, covered to such a degree. Um, it's more commonplace today, but none of the prospects today are getting it to the magnitude he got it when he was the first one in the early 2000s. Right, and I think we also have to consider in the earlier sort of 2000 high school timeline, which people need to tend to forget that a lot of these young kids were drafted, and a lot of them pan out, and mainly because of that, it wasn't necessarily that teams didn't know what to do with them, it's just that the hierarchy of coaching in the league was much different than it was now. A lot, If you were to look at like the late 90s, early 2000s, there's a lot of older generational coaches didn't necessarily want to play these guys much younger at the end of the day. Like, if we, if you want to use the Kobe analysis again, I mean, remember, Del Harris was barely playing in 20 to 25 minutes before we really got to see Kobe be Kobe. And there are a lot of other guys that probably got lost in the show. So, I mean, we didn't see, like, the growth of when Tyson Chandler was drafted out of the big Bills until much later in his career when he was with those early Chicago Bulls teams in the early 2000s. So, you're going to see as internet age and the computer timeline, uh, not the computer timeline, but the internet age and scouting and being more generally dynamic, a point to be made in this break. This is also the growth of YouTube, the growth of Facebook, the growth of Instagram and Twitter, where we now have more knowledge on these prospects than any other timeline. And one point to make from that is that means all these NBA teams have the same information. It's very rare where a prospect is not known prior to the draft because there's been scouting, there's been people looking for guys for years. And that's why we're going to start to see, especially with the, with the European and the high school ranks coming up too, we're going to start to see how talent is dissected and looked at much differently than it has in times of even like five or ten years ago. That's right. And uh, there's a name that you mentioned a few minutes ago here. I was going to mention it if you didn't, Kobe Bryant who went, of course, 13th in the draft in 96, uh, the incomparable Jerry West making sure to target him in a trade with Charlotte and get him into the Lakers jersey. And uh, the rest was history, basically, as far as it goes, because that was a thing where it was it was an upside pick that Jerry West was making there. And again, that's generally what, especially the top part of the draft, is traditionally about. And that's what led to being very adventurous on taking these high school kids and spending these picks, more often than not, it would go poorly. And that was why the, the uh, league in 2004 set it so that uh, players had to go for at least one year of college. Uh, ironically, we're about maybe two years away from that being repealed. So we're going to be entering a new era of high school players being able to come right to the league. But there was a great number of busts in the early 2000s and the late 90s there's a name also, too, to get to that is uh, a revolutionary figure when it comes to NBA drafting, and that is Dirk Nowitzki. In 1998, going ninth in the draft to Dallas. Interestingly, one pick before Paul Pierce at number 10. It was uh, unusual to see players who would go on to the career that Paul Pierce had also going that late in the lottery. He was overlooked by teams in front of him. That led to the massive chip on his shoulder that he still has today. But as far as Dirk Nowitzki goes... 
he was basically the great European hope. It was the promise that you could get one of these kids from overseas, he would become a franchise player, somebody that you could build around, and it, it led to some uh, really interesting swings, and in a lot of cases, swings and misses over the next couple of years. Now, Pau Gasol going number three overall in 2001, he's turned out to have an outstanding career. Yao Ming, 2002, if he hadn't gotten hurt, uh, he would have been uh, a slam dunk uh, player as, as one of the best uh, talents of the 2000s in the NBA. Still had a very good career for as long as he was around. But then it kind of started to sour. 2003, Darko Milchik going number two overall to Detroit, infamously. And you had a, a lot of high-profile swings and misses with Euros for the next decade plus. Uh, Andrea Bargnani, number one overall in 2006 to Toronto. That didn't go well. And there was a period of time going into, I would say it was the early 2010s, where I was very leery of advocating anybody taking a Euro at the top of the first round because it had been such a long drought in terms of any of them panning out at a high level. This this chasing of the next Dirk, not necessarily at that position, but you know what I mean, a franchise player. It took so long after Dirk to where we could start getting top caliber players from overseas again. Right, and I think, I mean, and obviously if you're leading into that, You have developments also in the 2000s here as well as you start getting into the era of post-hand checking 
uh, when that was basically taken away and uh, it allowed for more freedom of movement without the actual laying of hands onto a player, which on a theoretical level I think was supposed to be illegal all along, but just wasn't uh, called and enforced. Simultaneously, more or less, in that timeline, uh, the legalization of zone defenses and of, uh, you, you wouldn't be you know getting whistles out on the floor for that kind of thing. I, I'm old enough to remember as a tiny little kid going to the, Cle- the uh, Richfield Coliseum and having the ball whistled dead for a team playing an illegal defense, and uh, you weren't seeing that anymore either. So that the game was going through its own changes here as the league was trying, I think as leagues often do, as the NFL has done over a period of time, MLB, things to try to juice it up from an aesthetic standpoint. Right, and I think if we've always discussed how the NBA does in terms of progression and what we see from the league, is that it's like all sports too, right? Because I think we always assume everything is a big constant forever in all sports and style of play. It usually changes with the times, it changes with the dynamicism. Another analysis point that we can take away from this is it's very similar to high fashion. Fashion evolves based on the past and, you know, moving into the, what could be the future. And I think with player development now, you're trying to focus in on guys who can do either a lot of things well or a guy that can do one thing really well. And I think that one thing really well is the club has a bonus in three-point shooting. And guys like Duncan Robinson, guys like Tyler Hero, just initial names out there, are going to be guys who are going to have like the NBA careers because if you can make three pointers now, it's more important than anything else. And we're going to start to see teams target certain guys that they like just to get a goal for what their teams ultimately want to be. It's very interesting to think because a couple of years that there was this whole mid time, the midpoint in the league around was it when the Spurs are winning titles in like the mid 2000s that a lot of people were not essentially fans of the NBA because the style of play is kind of boring. Right. And now we're moving into a timeline where everything is much more tempo and more exciting, but then the argument is it's more homogenized than ever before. So it's going it's going to be interesting to see if the league is going to not necessarily push back on offense at some point, but if we're going to start to see hand checking again and if there's any way that offensively teams are going to excuse me, defensively or that teams will be able to implement to try and stop better players. And the Spurs are a team, I'm glad you mentioned it, because that's what I was going to get to next anyways. This is how uh, smoothly we work between us. That if you're looking at this 25-year period from when the high school players started to come in in 95 to the present, the team that dominates this story for a longer period of time than anybody else is San Antonio, from winning their first title in 99 to winning their most recent title in 2014. They are a team, and we'll we'll get to the, We'll take the 2011 draft separately here uh, in a, in a moment because that is by far the greatest player development draft in the history of the league. Of course, Kawhi Leonard coming in and being a key part for San Antonio in that last championship that they got over Miami. But the stretch in between, when you would talk about the big three there in uh, San Antonio, it was it was the dynamic duo in '99 with David Robinson and Tim Duncan. Uh, But then from there on in, the big three, as it would come to be described, Tony Parker, Mono Ginobili, the international players who came in, who rose to such a high level in the Popovich system that was there. It was something that, again, 
uh, particularly in terms of them being international players coming in and contributing at that level, it was unprecedented. These guys were picks lower in the draft for them to rise up to that level uh, and, and be able to meet uh, Duncan at that level, pretty much unprecedented as well, right down to uh, the last championship that they won in 2014, really, Tim Duncan wasn't the best player on that team anymore. I don't know who you would have said it was, maybe Tony Parker at that point, uh, but it was Duncan's career starting to wind down. For, for those guys to come in, and they're the most notable pieces since then, but uh, really since then, San Antonio has continued to plug players in, not always international players, but frequently. What Popovich has done there. Uh, it stands out to me as the greatest prolonged example of great player development in the history of the league. Yeah, and I, I think the credit goes to Popovich, and the credit goes to the staff that they've put together over these years, and the credit goes to R.C. Buford and Sean Marcher, focusing more on trying to create that sort of team element style of basketball. Because at the point, if you are thinking about the early to mid, early 2000s, basketball was seen, the local point seemed to be on a lot of guys who were superstar isolation players. Mm-hmm. And the Spurs, essentially, that's what they ended up becoming. They were a team that had the revolutionized leagues of thinking about ball movement, passing, three-point shooting, and unhealthy play. And I think that's why a lot of people eventually gravitate towards the late social place, despite the fact that teams weren't big. They didn't have any real flashy guys. A lot of people love Tim Duncan, but Tim Duncan, at least based on his persona, is very very quiet, very simple, not exactly polarizing, but the way the first play basketball was polarizing. I think if we look forward into the league, we're gonna to start to see we're gonna to start to see a mixture of how talent is blended in each sort of area too. And I am intrigued too, Rex, to see if we're going to start to see a little bit of movement back to more defensive orientation if we saw in this draft in twenty twenty eight, we saw two guys uh, Patrick Williams go to uh, Chicago and Isaac Okoro go to, to uh, the Cavaliers, who are mainly sort of defensive flex players. Yeah. And I'm intrigued to see if teams are going to start to focus on those guys more now, because they're trying to stop guys like LeBron and Luka and all these other big body guys. Or if this is one of those anomaly years where the talent being draft class over him with people thought it was. Well, and, and that's going to be the interesting story over the long haul, and I will say again, uh, the Cavs taking a Coro at five is a sore spot to me. Uh, the whole notion of learning a jumper at the pro level is not what I want to hear from my team's number five draft pick, but uh, that's another story for another day. This is a draft where it may pan out to be perhaps, uh, and I think a lot of teams are hoping that this would be the case, the equivalent of uh, the 2011 draft, because that was a year where you didn't have uh, anybody up there at the top, aside from, I will say as a Cavs fan, thinking back to what the debate was with the number one pick, it was either Kyrie Irving or Derek Williamson. I didn't trust that Derek Williams was necessarily the real deal. As a guy who had just emerged in his sophomore season, I was behind Kyrie all the way. I knew he had injury concerns, but I wanted it. I always wanted it on the upside. I knew he could become a franchise player. I wanted Kyrie. It was deemed to be a two-player draft. And you look at that subsequently, uh, and, and this is leaving aside players that went on to become excellent role players, like Tristan Thompson at four, also to the Cavs, uh, Jonas Valanciunas at five to Toronto, uh, and, and some other really good players as well, Kemba Walker at nine to Charlotte. But 
all-time players in this draft. Clay Thompson at 11 to Golden State. That's a guy that, and I looked at him as a, as a really good shooter coming out of college, and I was like, that's a guy that, you know, might perhaps in a peak season maybe make an all-star game. He'll be a really good shooter. I mean, little did I know what the upside for that was. Kawhi Leonard at 15, as was touched on earlier. Uh, again, an all-time player in his own right. And again, just other players in this draft really good. Uh, you know, Tobias Harris at 19 uh, going to uh, Charlotte and uh, other uh, ones as well as you, as you go down in the draft here. It turned out to be an excellent draft class all the way down to the very end. Isaiah Thomas going with the last pick in the draft, the Mr. Irrelevant going to Washington, but I'm sorry, coming from Washington. I was, I was looking at the... Uh, uh, the school that he went to, going to Sacramento, I should say, and uh, becoming an excellent player for many years in the league as well. 2011, that's what you're always hoping for. You're always hoping that even when you look at a draft class and it doesn't look outstanding, and for 2020 it didn't look outstanding because even the top guys had holes in their game that have to be patched. A lot of guys with a lot of upside, but a lot of holes in that. In 2011, there was a lot of guys that had holes in their game. Clay Thompson had to prove that he could be more than just a shooter. Uh, it, quite frankly, uh, Kawhi Leonard had to prove that he could shoot the ball at all. And on down the list it goes. And 2011, if, if we're going to say that San Antonio might be the greatest long-term program in the history of the league as far as player development, the greatest draft I've ever seen in terms of player development was 2011. Right. And I mean, if we're talking San Antonio, we talk about Yes. Good call. And I mean, other things, I mean, if you just kind of, because I think we all kind of forget in terms of like 2011 and 20, uh, just just looking at it overall, there was a lot of names on this class that had a bunch of different, a bunch of different, just had a huge impact in the league. Guys like Kenneth Marie, Nico Amiritz, Reggie Jackson, yeah. John Bogdanovich, there's a lot of guys. And it would be, it would, it would be a movement, so I'll mention this is all through the Cup Rapid Chamber Portland this year. Yes. And because of that, we're starting to see how the league is sort of shaking down. And you'll start to see a lot of these guys who are going to be in the second round who are going to make impacts on teams now because teams are now given the ability with the two-way deals in the G League to just do things differently. That's right. And yep. allow them to essentially grow. And like, unlike before, because it doesn't, it doesn't surprise me at all that with the growth of the G League over these last eight to not ten years, that teams are becoming better at having that relationship with the players because they have the coaching staff that can now work with those guys and send them ready-made talent to their teams. Right now, only two teams, I believe, the Denver Nuggets and the Portland Trailblazers are the only two teams that do not have a G League-affiliated team, and that will probably change in the next three or four years. It probably will. And as far as it goes with Denver, uh, one of the things here, if, if we're looking at this period of time, because a name you mentioned before, Luka Doncic, if, if we look at sort of the connective tissue between Luka Doncic and going back to Dirk Nowitzki in, in 98 and the way that we've come full circle now on how you can trust some of the top European talent. Although, quite frankly, in 2019, if everybody felt they could have trusted the tape and the reports and whatever, then Luca would have gone number one overall. But the fact that he was able to go as high as number three showed that the trust 
had sort of been restored as far as players overseas, and two players that were very, very instrumental in that. In the 2013 draft class, which was universally reviled at the time, my Cleveland Cavaliers infamously taking Anthony Bennett number one overall because I'm guessing they threw a dart at a dartboard. Uh, you look at what happened there, and the Greek freak ends up going in the draft number 15 to Milwaukee, and that was the thing where, again, they just took a flyer on him. This is a guy with a lot of athleticism. This is a guy we think we can develop. And I think if you gave him a lie detector test, they would probably admit that it was beyond even their wildest imagination at the time what he's become. Uh, a year later, in the second round, uh, the Joker goes to Denver with the 41st pick overall. 2013 and 2014, these things happen. It took a couple of years for Jokic to, to rise to that level as well. It got to basically the late 2010s uh, when you had the Greek freak becoming one of the top players in the league, Jokic uh, not far behind on his heels. And by the time 2019 had rolled around, it was a thing where I think the bad taste of a lot of the European flops of the 2000s and early 2010s was sort of gone. And the people like me that were saying, I need to see some guys from overseas make it before I can believe that the scouting is solid enough to be able to project them as top guys. Luka Doncic coming in, he was basically to me the personification of the trust that was restored in the system of where, yes, we can trust our scouting reports, we can trust the film, we can bring these guys over here and make successes of them. Right, and I think the major issue is, is that after many sort of draft class, you can very easy to kind of look at it whole, because on average, if you look at every NBA draft in the inception, usually there's three to four talented drafts. If mm -hmm. you just look at it just like that. And there's going to be years where you're going to have good talent and bad talent, and you have to find a way either to get the good talent on your side, or you're trying to find the perfect fit for your team, in my opinion, Rick. And the one thing that we know about the draft is that there can be major hits later on in it, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. So when, regardless of where you're selecting, you have to find the best fit for your rotation, the best fit for your roster at the end of the day. And I think we sometimes, especially GMs, get caught up in the fact of we have to take the guy that fits us the best instead of the guy that might be more talented. And I think we, it's still an issue. We still talk about this. We just saw in this draft. We saw Tyree Calvert drop from a top eight pick to, a, to 12. So we're going to, I think if we just sort of look at how the draft plays out over time, you're going to see that player development in terms of coaching and in terms of just overall mindfulness of these guys. It's going to just be very interesting to see how it starts to improve and how, I mean, we're talking at this time, I know we're, there, were, there are stacks now to deal with everything. Like if you were in the 1980s, I was the running joke was that you're frank and conditioning because of yourself, essentially. Uh -huh. And now you have multiple guys, you have people on staff who are paid nutritionists, paid paid people to help you who are paid psychologists, people who help you sleep, people who help you pay sports psychologists that are able to help you with your mind. We're on a timeline of optimal improvement in most human beings. And I think it's going to be very interesting to see if we're going to start to see guys who under older times never have paid out, receive the help and get rocked in help. Yes, I believe that, and uh, there's an article that uh, you were uh, smart enough to flag for me to read before this 
here. I want to recommend it to everybody because it's outstanding. It is not surprising to find something of outstanding caliber in this area on the Ringer. Go to TheRinger.com. The headline is Behind the Scenes of the Timberwolves' Decision to Draft Anthony Edwards. And it's basically using Anthony Edwards to analyze one specific uh, seg sector of overall player development with a franchise. Now he's one of the guys they're going to be building around. What are some of the things that teams look for? Particularly interesting in there was when it mentioned about how a lot of teams now, just about everybody to whatever degree, is using analytics a lot. And analytics in a lot of ways has been pegged to uh, shooting, three-point shooting, really what you've seen with the Daryl Morey teams that were in uh, Houston, uh, a little bit of a precursor as well, you know, in Phoenix, where you were talking about seven seconds or less when they were doing that. I think the, the modern manifestation, as all of us tend to think of it, is 2014 when Steve Kerr gets the Golden State and they win three titles in four years. Uh, by the way, uh, don't let the fact they won three titles in four years distract you from the fact that the Warriors blew a 3-1 lead. I can't let that go unsaid. But that is a thing where, you know, it was sort of spotlighted out there that uh, the, the supremacy of three-point shooting, if you can get the top shooters, the, the obsolescence of long twos, that coincided with Carmelo Anthony, uh, the drop that he started to have in esteem around the league because he was a long two specialist in a league that started to turn up its nose at that. That didn't coincide very well with his aging curve, so he was a little bit of a victim of that. Almost fitting that Steve Kerr gets the Golden State right as San Antonio wins their most recent title and hasn't won one since because it's almost sort of the passing of the torch there in terms of one approach in the league, San Antonio, the player development that they had ongoing. They still have excellent player development. It's just not dominant at this point. Golden State factoring analytics into the mix uh, here. The analytics specifically referenced in the, in the Ringer story, uh, of course, free throw percentage. That's what teams look for in terms of what guys did in college and I suppose also overseas as well. If you're trying to figure out what somebody's ceiling is as a, a shooter, look at what their free throw percentage was. Also look at the uh, steals and the blocks if you want to measure athleticism. Uh, a really excellent article that you ended up flagging for me, Ben. Right, and, and I think the one thing, too, that is to make the point of this, I think for most NBA fans, and just generally, we, we have this perception that scouts are only monitoring X, Y, and Z. But with the wealth of data we currently have now, you have to look at a little bit of everything. In the old days, if you know, they were just measurables, pretty much. It was height, weight, wingspan, and now we have ways of telling defensive percentage on fields and best isolation defenders and guys who can just make things happen in terms of hustle stats. And I think we now know more data than ever before. And it's interesting to see because there's going to be a time where, and it's just narrative, it's called data bias, essentially, where we might miss on guys who we thought data-wise were great, but on the eye test, they're not going to be as good. That's right. That's uh, that's still going to happen. It, it, it's going to be interesting to see from the different perspectives and how they get blended as we go along. Because again, there is the analytics toolbox. Uh, there is the traditional scouting, which still plays a role in this. 
and the best organizations find a blend of them. San Antonio very famously has done the sort of buffet approach of, of looking at a number of different factors in terms of ascertaining how a player is going to fit into their system. And really Denver and Miami have done that as well. At the outset, I held them up as the best examples of today, having made it to the conference finals in both conferences there. In the case of Miami, actually making it to the NBA finals. And uh, in Denver, a core there of uh, you've got the Joker as a second-round pick, Murray, who was uh, you know, a fairly high draft pick, but in a relatively uh, unheralded draft class, so that really didn't mean a whole lot. Michael Porter Jr., a player just outside of the lottery, I should say, uh, albeit, again, he would have been a high lottery pick had there not been the injury questions. So Porter is not necessarily one of these player development stories because he is a star with pedigree in the classic sense. But still, Denver bringing these guys together and other players on this team uh, to, to really form an excellent hole and one that looks like it's going to be one of the top teams in the West in the 2020s for Miami, really almost kind of coming from nowhere this season. Jimmy Butler gets down there. and uh, Another guy here, when you're talking about uh, 2011 and uh, some of the guys who really uh, were able to emerge, uh, Jimmy Butler is, is an excellent, excellent story. Uh, in terms of what he was able to do. He actually went 30th, the last pick in the first round of the Chicago Bulls. But he found another level altogether when he got to Miami uh, and becoming, I would think, in the minds of a lot of people, a consensus top 10 player in the league. And that's not something I think that could have been said about him previously. Certainly not as previously as the, the, you know, the year uh, before when Philadelphia flipped him to Miami when they thought that was their route to getting better. So Jimmy Butler taking steps forward in Miami, but particularly the young guys. You mentioned Tyler Hero before, Bam Adebayo, who, along with Jokic, this, this is now one of the interesting subsets to look at in terms of player development in the league, because Jokic uh, may be the best passing center since Wilt, certainly one of the best of all time, uh, and he's still relatively young in his career. Adebayo showing himself to be an excellent playmaker, and all of a sudden, in the last year, I've been reading about teams going after playmaker fives. This is a thing now of seeing you know, how well guys can distribute from the pivot uh, and open up the offense that way, unlock achievements for other players in that manner. So in that way, at least, Denver and Miami mirroring uh, what, what's happening there in the programs with a specific type of player. Adebayo still has a little ways to go to match Jokic's offense, uh, although, again, he may reach that point as well at the rate that he's growing. But these teams right now are pretty much, I think, at the top of the mountain as far as what they're doing uh, in, in terms of the development. And in the case of Miami, retaining enough cap room to where in another year, if the Greek freaks out there, Hey, Pat Riley managed to bring LeBron to South Beach. He's, he's waved rings before and made it happen. Miami's still got the ability to go the classic route and top it off with a superstar from outside. Right, and I, I think the thing, too, is flexibility, especially within the cap now, is going to be more important than ever just to the revenues lost in the upcoming salary cap time with the COVID. And if getting revenues back to normal throughout the league is going to take, it's going to be a two- to four-year process get people back into the building of feeling safe and watching a basketball game again. And I think we would we have to note too that a lot of these GMs and a lot of these scouting departments are now more 
the market, I see it more than ever. So finding those little edges is not going to be as easy as it was back in the early 2000s when San Antonio was drafting, you know, William Parker, who were on the radars of many teams. Not They weren't outside of me, the Boston Celtics were trying to get Tony Parker at that time. There, to my knowledge, at least due to any there, no one thought you know, we were going to even be selected in the draft in the late second round of that draft class. So it's going to, it's just going to be a very interesting thing, way to see a lot of these teams who are essentially middle market teams, teams like Portland, teams like Denver, teams like the Utah Jazz, teams like the Orlando Magic and the Charlotte Hornets, who are going to have to find their way and find their guys. I mean, and again, to, no, Rick, to go back to one of your minor points before, we, we've seen the playmaking five, and the question for a lot of people prior to this was, how was the center position going to die out? Essentially, like we all saw, it's never going to truly die out. What it is is that a homogenized mix now, you need the playmaking five now. And we saw it again, another notable name, uh, Aneka, uh, was it Aneka Kaglu, uh, mm-hmm. the guy who part of the evolution, the, the, the constant evolution of the game. And to bring it full circle and look ahead to the future, Ben, uh, we are now, I mean, I don't know that we're quite at the dawn of the post-COVID age. I don't know if you could say that when it's still raging out of control worse than ever, but we're within a couple months of the uh, vaccine really being able to get out there. Who knows when it's going to reach critical mass, hopefully by mid-2021 at the latest, but as you start to look ahead, you raised the question before about revenues and how long it's going to take the league to catch up. Certainly, the, the NBA, just like every sports league, is going to spend the early 2020s under the shadow of this, digging out from where we've been, digging out from the financial damage. Is this a thing where player development, obviously, as I said at the outset, for a team like the Cavs, uh, for some of the teams you were mentioning, it's everything. A team like Utah that took a guy like Donovan Mitchell at the end of the lottery and made him one of the biggest stars in the league. That's another great example of it right there. That That's your your avenue right now. Far more so than thinking that uh, if you're a smaller market team that LeBron's going to come to your town unless he was born 40 miles away from there. But is this going to be even more outsized in the next couple of years than it would be otherwise? because of the scarcity of resources and the need to do things uh, in, a, in a cheaper way, for lack of a better term of, of putting it. You're going to have to spend resources on player development, but that's a lot cheaper than laying out big salaries for star talent. I have the sense that this may be even more important the next couple of years in the league because of these specific circumstances. Well, and I also think, too, Rick, that this is the first real COVID draft, the first real NBA draft that we have. Guys essentially who were feared into the G League system and were allowed to 
trying to figure out how to get the next great player, or is it going to be a hindrance to them in terms of what are they ultimately their final output is going to be in terms of creating top talent and growing from within, or is it better just to get that ready-made NBA guy you know that you can pay eight to ten million dollars a year and he'll be able to do what you need him to do? See, and my guess is it'll probably be some of both. Uh, you're going to have some teams that, under the duress of these circumstances, they are going to learn how to build a better mousetrap, and you're going to have other teams that are going to flounder, largely because they're just going to continue to make bad decisions, as they always have. We've seen in the very early part of free agency here in 2020 some absolutely reprehensible contract uh, choices that have been made, and the teams that are doing that are clearly not the teams that are poised to make improvements and learn and move ahead in this new, ever more challenging climate. But taking a look at, it, again, this, this story of largely, I would say, the last 25 years and predominantly uh, as we moved along the last several years, the last 10 or 15 years and how it shapes where we're at right now. Like I said at the outset, definitely a conversation I was looking forward to having. And out of our very, very deep base of uh, FDH Lounge dignitaries, two dozen plus. Uh, it really says something when I say that I'm not sure I could have had this conversation with anybody else. Maybe one or two other people, possibly, but that's a maybe. So, Ben, I take my hat off to you for helping to execute this so well. Thank you so much. Very much appreciate it, my friend. Well, I appreciate it, Rick. And one, one final note I do want to make when we talk about player development and scouting and the San Antonio Spurs. I would be beholden not to mention the work of the team writer Kirk Goldberg, who was working with the Spurs in the late 2015 time. For those of you who don't know, he was the guy who essentially pioneered the hexagonal shot chart in Argentina analytics form. So like, we see it all the time now of like a player's hot ranges and cold ranges, but prior to early 2012, a lot of us didn't have that, and we are now talking about all these inefficiencies that are now seen in the that were now brought up even more in today's game. He was one of those few guys that we're also talking about. So we, I, I, I people not to talk about player development without talking about shot at some point. What an excellent thing to mention. Absolutely, yeah, because this is something where analytics in all sports, uh, we've seen that. You see it with the heat charts uh, in, in MLB. You see it in all of the sports out there right now. But if, if, you, if you compare the NBA to MLB, I, I would say, the player development is so superior right now because one of the frustrating things in Major League Baseball is with development. They keep teaching everybody to, to do the uppercut swing uh, so that, again, you know, home runs, that that's where it's at. It leads to guys who strike out a whole crap load repeatedly, and that's just the cost of doing business. Uh, they haven't taught guys to be able to, to beat the shift, essentially. The shift continues to take away hits. You could have an empty entire side of the infield and a guy doesn't know how to go the other way. And we're about 10 years into the shift era and you still have guys that can't go the other way. So in other sports, Ben, it's not been as successful uh, adapting to this new era, even taking all the new information, because there are things like spin rate that we didn't have uh, the ability to look at previously in baseball, the way that some soft tossers could get away with, with throwing the ball and, and getting guys out. You come to find out it was their spin rate that we've been able to quantify since then. So other sports have greater information than ever before. All of them do. The NBA, the NHL, MLB, 
the NFL. They all have advanced statistics right now that we can sort of glory in as fans to be able to evaluate better. But what the NBA is doing, purely in terms of being able to extrapolate it and use it in this way, is really exemplary. Right, and I think the most important things we have now, because I think at times that we discuss this all very analytics becomes a dirty word for most sports fans. I wanted to focus on, we have more data in the NBA more than ever. And it would behoove us to not use the data when trying to analyze players, because for all these analysis points, where sometimes the human eye test is going to be the best fit for trying to judge a talent. But it always matters that as long as we have the data and we can make these assessments, you're going to make better decision-making and data than making it essentially go and out of form. Absolutely. And the best organizations out there in any sport, they're going to have the successful blend, the analytics, the eye tests, slash scouting, all the different elements coming together to make it happen. It's what the most successful franchises have done over the history of sports and what they will continue to do in the future. And a lot of times, as with the conversation today, it's fun to take a look at the specifics and see the the ups and downs over a period of time and adaptations that have been made, things that we've learned from successes and failures. And the NBA's story right now in terms of player development and where we've come over the period of time is very fascinating. As I say, can't thank you enough, Ben Chu. Really appreciate it. Thank you, everybody, for being a part of, for listening to FDH Lounge mini episode 1309.